Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. Last week, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services announced $350 million in awards to every state across the nation to support safe pregnancies and healthy babies. Funding will expand home visiting services to families most in need, increase access to doulas, address health disparities in infant deaths, and improve data reporting on maternal mortality. Though it is timely today that we have Karen Marks, policy advisor in the Office of Intergovernmental and External Affairs in the Office of the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, and Rachel Abbey, Public Health Analysis with the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, or ONC. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Albright. My day job is Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous Payments. Z-E-L-I-S. Zealous's mission is to enable providers to simplify and save on their payments and claims. I also serve as the Communication Committee Chair for WEDI. That's W-E-D-I. WEDI is a national membership organization where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. So let me tell you a bit more about our guest. Rachel Abbey is a public health analyst with HHS's ONC. Rachel supports ONC's public health, emergency preparedness, and emergency medical services and health information exchange activities. Over the span of her career, Rachel has worked at the national, state, and local level for almost 20 years in the areas of environmental health, emergency preparedness, violence prevention, maternal and child health, and health information technology. Karen Marks serves as a policy advisor in the Office of Intergovernmental and External Affairs in the Office of the Secretary at HHS. In this role, Karen serves as the Secretary's point of contact for state and local elected officials on Medicaid and Medicare issues. Karen also leads departmental work on maternal health issues. And before coming to HHS, Karen focused on health reform implementation and Medicaid and CHIP policy at Booz Allen Hamilton, National Governors Association, and the Kaiser Family Foundation. Karen, Rachel, a big long introduction there, but very glad to have you on our show today on The Collective Voice. Thank you, super excited to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Okay, very good. All right, so let's start. Uh, Karen, maybe we start with you and then to Rachel. Tell us a little bit uh, about maybe your own you know, career path and how you came uh, to be interested in, and focused on maternal health issues. Great. Thank you, Matthew. And thank you again for inviting us today. We're looking forward to the conversation. So as Michael mentioned, I've been in the health policy space for about 20 years, but a couple of years ago, I entered into the maternal health space. I suddenly found myself sitting around a conference room table discussing potential HHS strategies for addressing the maternal health crisis. And then I looked around the table and I paused and I thought, huh, None of my colleagues around the table were thinking and speaking about this from a place of lived experience. There were the males who hadn't had children yet, another female who didn't have children, and then somebody who was older than childbearing age. I realized that having personally given birth recently and also recovering successfully from a severe maternal morbidity event that I had a unique perspective to contribute. But more importantly, I had a passion for improving the maternal health outcomes for all birthing people. And so after that conversation, I've committed my work to doing this for the last few years and have been very excited and engaged on the topic from the stakeholder perspective ever since. 
I, I, I love that your 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 career focus uh, completely aligns with some of your passions that came from uh, personal experience. That's that's a that's a great story, uh, Rachel. Great. Uh, thank you again so much, Matthew, for having me today. So um, I, like Karen, have also been in the um, public health space for about 25 years. And um, I actually fell in love with the field uh, working in my first job um, out of undergrad in maternal and child health. I was working with families of children with special needs in North Carolina. And it was through the work with these families that I learned about the importance of public health, especially like around prevention, advocacy, health education, and community support. And it was from there that I explored, you know, other areas of public health from environmental health, violence prevention, which also included like family, you know, violence and um, emergency preparedness as well. And at each point, you know, I took the lessons that I learned from uh, working in maternal and child health and making sure that uh, both moms and babies were also included in every aspect of that work. And so, um, you know, for the most of my career, I've really worked in county, city, state, or federal government. And um, I've always valued the importance of government and the idea of serving and protecting the public's health. Um, and then, then lo and behold, today I'm in health IT <laughs> with a particular focus, you know, on public health informatics and which is really like the intersection of where health IT meets public health. So there continues to be a need um, for public health to be a part of healthcare, and, and no, um, nowhere is it more obvious than in technology. And so I look forward to talking more about that today. Very good, very good, and I can hear the uh, the amount of passion in uh, both your voices as you describe your story. So that's great to see uh, healthcare IT leadership uh, uh, driven by such passion. And uh, it sounds like you really worked in the trenches uh, there, Rachel, at the state and local level. So you you sounds like you may have seen how policy actually affects uh, women and children on the ground. Yes, most definitely. I saw a lot of it from day to day really impacting, you know, um, families' lives, particularly, you know, around uh, how federal policies get made and passed and then trickle down to the state and local level. Um, it definitely has an impact um, down the line. Absolutely. So it sounds like, and as I mentioned at the top of the uh, broadcast, that uh, HHS is very active in this space. But maybe we back uh, up a second and talk about what is the current status of maternal health in the United States? And maybe what are some of the challenges or obstacles you're seeing uh, for that uh, population? Absolutely. And I can take this one. The current situation is very shocking to people who uh, aren't really well versed in this. Surprisingly enough, the US is one of the least safe developed countries where a person can give birth. So we're looking, we're in the year 2021, maternal mortality in the US is higher than nearly every other developed and high income country. Our mortality rate right now is on par with countries such as Moldova, Romania, and Latvia. Just doesn't seem like it's safe right now. And specifically, right now, the maternal mortality rate is 17.4 deaths per 100,000 live births. So we're looking at nearly 700 deaths per year of, for women giving birth. 
And while all the other developed and least developed countries have seen declines in mortality over time, the rate of pregnancy-related mortality in the U.S. has been rising steadily over the past three decades. So we have a severe crisis that's continuing to get worse, not better. And in addition to severe to mortality, we have a crisis with respect to severe maternal morbidity. And what morbidity is are the near misses. So these are the maternal health problems related to pregnancy and giving birth that occur during a pregnancy, during delivery, and after the pregnancy ends. The issue is that these morbidity events can have, can have long-term consequences for individuals giving birth, and it'll affect their future prospects and potentially impact their future pregnancies. So to put that in context, the examples of severe maternal morbidity includes heart attack, eclampsia, sepsis, and hysterectomy. And while we only have 700 deaths, and only is very awful to say, we have 50,000 morbidity events each year. This situation is at crisis levels. What makes it even more troubling are the large and really, quite frankly, unacceptable disparities by race, ethnicity, and geography in both maternal mortality and morbidity. So specifically, pregnancy-related mortality for Black mothers is three times higher compared to white mothers. And these disparities exist and they persist regardless of income or socioeconomic achievement. So what we found from the studies is that a black woman with a college degree or higher has a mortality rate five times greater than a white woman with these same degrees. And the mortality rate for a black woman with a PhD is higher than a white woman with no college education. And this gap between black and white women worsens even with age. So maternal mortality rate for all women grows after the age of 35. They call it advanced maternal age. It feels very Awkward for women giving birth at 35, feeling as though they're geriatric. But the difference between Black and white women over the age of 40 is staggering. Black women experience pregnancy-related mortality four times the rate of white women at that age. And there's also disparities not just between Black and white women, but between tribal populations as well. Um, American Indian and Alaskan Natives have two times higher rate of mortality than white women, and there's also large geographic disparities where rural women are more likely to have poor outcomes than women living in urban areas. And I'll go into that a little bit more as we continue the discussion. And so while all of these statistics are really scary, this is a solvable problem. The CDC found that nearly two thirds or 66% of these deaths can be preventable. Uh, many of them are due to cardiovascular conditions and quality of care received. So, Mike, Matthew, you also mentioned the causes, and the big question I always hear in response to the sobering points about this crisis is what has been identified as the cause for this situation? Why is the U.S. an advanced country with spending so much money in this situation? And while there's no one cause and even more unfortunately, no silver bullet, there are some uh, challenges that we've identified and that we can address. The first contributing factor to these disparities, especially, and the poor outcomes, the biggest one I want to raise is racism. Part of the reason for the persistence gap in health outcomes between Black and white women is attributed to the systemic racism that has long affected Black women seeking medical care. So studies are showing that Black patients are undertreated for pain in comparison to white patients, 
And many medical practitioners have demonstrated unconscious biases when assessing the pain levels of their black patients. So the real world example of this is Serena Williams, who experienced a severe maternal morbidity event similar because her pain was left untreated when she noted it to her providers. Another factor related to the poor maternal health outcomes are comorbidities. And these are health outcomes that are associated with having a bad pregnancy outcome. So this is like a heart condition such as cardiomyopathy, um, which can increase the likelihood of a pregnancy-related death. And unfortunately, Black women are more likely than white women to face underlying health, health conditions that contribute to their deaths. Another issue I want to raise, along with comorbidities and racism, are the unequal social determinants of health that contribute to racial disparities. So this is access to adequate nutrition and housing, toxin-free environments, access to transportation. Each of those are stressors on individuals who are giving birth that can lead to comorbidities, which then result in the higher likelihood of having a negative event during pregnancy. So in addition to those top issues, the other large factor that contributes to poor outcomes is healthcare coverage and specifically Medicaid. Medicaid, the coverage program for low-income individuals, covers nearly half of the births in the country. And unfortunately, Medicaid coverage ends 60 days after giving birth. But the data has shown that the timing of deaths among pregnant people occur, you could think of it easily in thirds. A third occur before pregnancy, a third on the day of delivery and up to six days postpartum, and that final third of deaths occur one week to one year postpartum. So as you can imagine, having health coverage both before, but especially up to a year after birth matters. In good news and some promising news, there was recent action in the, from the American Rescue Plan on the Hill to provide states with an option to voluntarily extend coverage. And a few states have received approval from CMS to do this through a different process called a waiver. But it's still a huge issue and the lack of access to coverage is contributing to these poor health outcomes. There's also issues related to rural disparities. So as I mentioned earlier, women living in urban areas and compared to women living in rural areas experience delayed rates of prenatal care. So if you're in a rural area, you're not necessarily seeing your doctor as early in pregnancy as you are if you're in an urban area. And in addition, a lot of rural counties are losing their hospital-based obstetric services. We keep hearing nationwide there's a closure of hospitals. Well, those are hospitals are closing in rural areas, leaving those women with no access both to prenatal care, but also a place to deliver, which is creating obviously worse outcomes if providers in the nearby area aren't equipped and ready, it's called OB ready to deliver babies. And as we all know, babies don't come on a schedule by any stretch of the imagination. So women are having out-of-hospital births and delivering in hospitals without obstetric units, which is problematic. In addition to the rural areas, there's also geographic differences in maternal mortality and morbidity. Research is showing that providers and system of care factors contribute to over half of all the pregnancy-related deaths. And the example here, and the most costly example, is the unnecessary utilization of C-sections among pregnant women who have a low medical risk. And this is a culture of care practice where in some areas, doctors like to practice it on their schedules at times, 
and or women want to have the baby on their schedule. And there's been a little understanding of how C-sections can negatively impact women and especially for low risk women delivering without a surgical intervention is by far the safer option. Um, there's also the opportunity to utilize certified midwives to expand the capacity of the healthcare system to address the needs of pregnant women. And I also want to then turn it over to my colleague, Rachel Addy, to talk about data quality and timeliness of data in addition to other data issues related to the maternal health crisis. Great. Thanks, Karen. So as Karen noted, um, she discussed like the, air, the topics of morbidity, mortality, disparities in access, you know, women are having. Um, and so in order to measure all of this, we need accurate and timely data. You know, we need to measure whether or not it's a success or failure. We need to be able to create interventions and ultimately improve the health of women. So there continues to be large challenges in health IT, as you all know. Um, and these challenges are not unique to maternal health, but are applicable to um, exchanging health data in general. Um, so there's first, first, I'm going to talk about three of the challenges. So first, there's the lack of interoperability, as we all know. So not being able to share data across desperate systems, you know, this continues to be difficult, particularly in maternal health, where services are provided by multiple service providers, many who are in community settings, such as home visiting and visiting nurses programs, and they just haven't fully brought, been brought into the fold of healthcare. So they may not have access to all of a patient's um, health information, or they may not use certified technology. So this makes it difficult to really share information. Another issue around interoperability is that patients continue to have to, you know, we, we hear time and time again, you know, that patients continue to have to report the same information multiple times, where if providers, you know, or patients were easily able to access all this health information, they may not need to do this over and over and over again and just to update it when things change. So, and then lastly around interoperability is that, um, you know, health information needs to include all appropriate clinical data. We all can agree on that. But also we need to begin thinking about those key social determinants of health factors, you know, housing, socioeconomic status, transportation, that can also um, affect a patient's health and actually have more of an impact on a patient's health. And so, you know, ONCs actually agrees with this. And this is why, you know, we have begun to include this in um, the U.S. CDI, which is the U.S. core data for interoperability. And I'll talk about that later on. But um, so a second major challenge um, in, in this space is that there are differing state and local policies. So since public health is federated in the United States to local and state authorities, we often have many differing policies as it relates to sharing data. This is particularly apparent around reporting of maternal, child, and fetal infant um, mortality and, mor and morbidity data. 
So states, territories, locals, and tribal governments are often sensitive to these data and have have developed policies on restricting the sharing of this data. And it makes it really difficult for providers, patients, and public health to make informed decisions. Um, a third challenge, um, which I'm sure your audience is pretty familiar with, is the fact is around like the challenge of standardization of data. So health data standards vary. There are no consistent health data standards. Data standards are not the same for public health um, data systems and healthcare systems. They often use different um, types of data standards. And this presents a problem, particularly when trying to exchange data between systems. Um, but we at ONC are committed to continuing to work to try and harmonize the two and um, looking at the newer and more innovative standards like FHIR and APR, APIs are making this um, a whole lot easier. So I'll turn it back to you, Matthew. So thank you, Rachel. And, and just a question back to you. Uh, I, I, I can understand the state and local and the different policies that apply and how that might uh, also affect the standardization of data if each of those uh, political subdivisions are creating their own um, uh, data definitions and things. But you did say that, that some local uh, groups are sensitive um, about the data. Um, and and it, are you saying that this is bad news and some local officials don't want to broadcast this broad bad news? Is that is that what you mean by sensitive? No, I just think it's like they're sensitive to making things, um, this data, uh, sharing it with everyone and anyone who wants this data. So I think it's, um, it's just being sensitive that they really want to make sure that the people receiving this data use it in an informally uh, capacity and it's not uh, shared, you know, greatly without context and things like that. Gotcha. I gotcha. Very appropriate. So, um, uh, Karen and Rachel, um, <laughs> very, uh, very depressingly, we've gone over the obstacles, uh, uh, systemic racism, comorbidity, uh, unequal determinants of um, health, which which also affects the data. Uh, so. So. OK, so give us give us the, some good news, I guess. What what is what are what is HHH, HHS focused on now and, and how can we how can we tackle these these issues? Absolutely. And I'm happy to report there is good news. The vice president recently stated we can't let up the fight to address maternal mortality in America. And happily, we are continuing our work and putting it on super speed. So presently, we're taking a whole-of-government approach. So it's offices, including the White House Domestic Policy Council, the Gender Policy Council, the Office of the Vice President, as well as other agencies, including HUD, Justice, Education, to really get at the social determinants of health, and of course, HHS, to address this crisis in a more holistic manner. In the spring, the President signed the first-ever proclamation on Black maternal health to recognize the crisis in Black maternal mortality and morbidity and to ensure that all women have equitable access to health care before, during, and after pregnancy. So you teed up the conversation earlier at HHS. We just announced last week an additional $350 million in funding to expand the workforce um, and to really help 
women after they've given birth. So that's expanding home visiting, as you mentioned, to those families that are most in need, increasing access to doulas, which help the give the women a voice during the birth episode, and to address health disparities in infant deaths and, and improve data reporting on maternal and infant mortality. We've also committed to investing in the health of rural maternal health care. We've made a $12 million investment over the next four years for a program that really is targeted towards rural areas. Um, it's called the Rural Maternity and Obstetrics Management System Program. And then we're also very supportive on the Hill of the Momnibus Act, the series of bills designed to advance maternal health on issues including social determinants of health, maternal mental health, and maternal vaccinations. And then lastly, as I mentioned before, there's approved Medicaid waivers in states. So three states to date have received these waivers in Illinois, Missouri, and Georgia to extend that postpartum coverage to Medicaid-eligible women up to 12 months beyond that 60 days. And many additional states have approved and proposed legislation to enact this change in the future. Lastly, I want to mention the secretary who brings up this issue in every interview and meeting he has. He's hosted a number of listening sessions and continues to bring this up on the road, especially because his wife is a uh, maternal and fetal medicine doctor. So he gets it both on the professional and personal level and really takes it to heart and is committed to this topic. Wow, uh, very good. So that sounds very active. And and Rachel, how about some of the obstacles that you saw? What what's some of the strategy for getting around those? Yeah. So Karen brings up like some of the really exciting um, stuff that the administration is doing, and ONC is also helping to support this these efforts. You know, more at a granular level, but I think it's really important. You know, in the in the data world. Um, so I'm just going to highlight a couple of activities that ONC is involved in to help improve the data of maternal health. So first off is pregnancy status. So in 2015 and 2016, during uh, the Zika outbreaks, um, we really uh, found out that there is a need to understand pregnancy status um, and kind of bring that to everyone's attention as we begin to share data, right? So the ability of public health agencies to receive pregnancy status data was vital to ensure appropriate testing and follow-up care for patients, particularly exposed pregnant women and their infants. So public health departments wanted to know if a positive lab test for Zika was from a pregnant woman or not. And often they just received the name and date of birth. So during Zika was the first time that we, um, on a federal level, saw a large need for additional information, specifically pregnancy status and other demographic information with electronic lab results, the need for that to follow um, through the process. And a lot of this came about because of the surge of positive labs in some states that were so great that the follow-up that was traditionally done became too difficult and often very resource intensive. So they had to be able to um, really prioritize those labs that were with pregnant women. And it was really difficult for them to do that. So, you know, COVID continues to raise this issue. Um, you know, 
that public health face during Zika. You know, the need for additional information such as pregnancy status and race and ethnicity to monitor and report disease trends and outcomes. And here, the surge of lab results and disease reports are way beyond even what Zika, you know, um, came. I mean, we're talking, uh, in some cases, over hundreds of thousands of labs and disease reports. So collecting the additional demographic information continues to be an issue on all government levels. Um, and it's, it's because of these issues with COVID and Zika that ONC has provided some standards for pregnancy status, which is, are now available in our interoperability standards advisory. So that's the ISA, which we hope will help guide developers and others to move forward in that direction. Um, ONC has also included pregnancy status in uh, the US core data for interoperability. I spoke about that briefly before. And USCDI is a standardized set of health data classes and basic data elements for nationwide interoperable health information exchange. And so pregnancy status is just at the comment level, um, but we are exploring um, how to make that a priority. Um, the second uh, effort I wanna just briefly touch upon is the importance of linking maternal and infant uh, records, right? So the problem here is that there are no requirements to link the mother and baby records. Um, the National Institutes of Health, ONC, and uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have um, commenced a research project to develop a standardized approach to link uh, electronic data on maternal and infant health for the use in studying the effects of some of the medical conditions that um, Karen mentioned, um, such as uh, postpartum depression or lactating women and their infants to reduce maternal mortality and other severe maternal morbidity issues. Um, the project will be focusing on developing HL7 fire implementation guides uh, to encompass pregnancy, pregnancy outcomes, and pregnancy-related conditions, comorbidities, and procedures, and link maternal and infant uh, health records. So this work uh, just kicked off in the May of this year, and um, we are really excited about the possibilities um, in helping to support this effort for future research. Very good. I, I think it's amazing uh, that the records of the mother uh, have not, they haven't figured that out. I mean, I don't know a lot about data, but it seems like that is like just very basic, a linkage that you need to make any kind of conclusions on certain things. <laughs> Absol absolutely. Yeah. I think, you know, there are definitely best practices and, and things like that that EHRs are using today to link them, but there's no consistency, right? So it makes it very um, hard to kind of uh, picture that across different systems. Right, right. That's really something. So uh, Karen, Rachel mentioned um, some of the uh, work that's gone on during the pandemic. What did you see during the pandemic with regard to uh, maternal health? Oh, unfortunately, I, I'm the bearer of bad news today. <laughs> this is nothing, there's nothing good about this front either. What research has shown is that pregnant and recently pregnant women are at a higher risk for severe illness from COVID-19 than non-pregnant women. 
and pregnant women with COVID-19 are at a higher risk for preterm birth and might have a higher risk for other adverse pregnancy outcomes. So in addition to being severely ill, on the ground there were impacts for women as well. So women who were, or people who were giving birth during those initial months, um, the visitation was limited and often if they had a partner, their partner wasn't able to go to the hospital during their birth because hospital visitors weren't allowed. There's also prenatal care was limited during those initial months of the pandemic because people were scared to leave, go to a healthcare setting for those reasons as well. Um, there is one bright spot in the role of telehealth, I would say, um, and in providers finding ways to deliver some of these services remotely. Um, obviously, telehealth isn't a solution for everybody. It's more limited in the rural areas. But for some people giving birth, that was a bright spot. And especially in blood pressure monitoring, that's something that can be done remotely to make sure the woman's health and given the impact of heart conditions on women, that mattered a bit as well. Um, the last thing I would mention is the importance of encouraging people who are giving birth to get the COVID-19 vaccine. The research wasn't there initially, and that made a lot of pregnant people hesitant. The research is there now, and I can't say strongly enough, please, please, please get the vaccine if you are a person who is pregnant and giving birth. There is no risk to pregnant women to getting the vaccine. And quite the contrary, the benefits have been shown with some of the antibodies being passed along to the baby. Excellent, Karen. And actually, why don't you say that one more time? Because I think that's 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 striking and it may not be in all the headlines. So go ahead, say it one more time. Thanks. And once again, I want to encourage the importance of pregnant women get it, getting the COVID-19 vaccine. The research has shown there are no risks to pregnant women to getting the vaccine. And quite the contrary, getting the vaccine benefits the baby with some of the antibodies passed along to the baby. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so uh, you mentioned telehealth. What is the... Um what what maybe both of you can tell me what your aspirations or your hope is for the future? Certainly, we're infusing a lot of money, uh, expanding some of the Medicaid timeframes. Um, do you see a period when maybe our our infant, well, when our uh, maternal uh, these issues are going to get better and and we can join the rest of the developing com uh, countries? Go ahead. We'll start with you, Karen. Sure. And yes, I do think there is a future. Um, I'd love to see from the interoperable perspective, I'd love to see that data is shared more fluidly between providers. Um, and I say that broadly. So I'm thinking OBE providers, but primary care and community health workers. I'd love to see data shared seamlessly between the patient and all of those different health workers to capture all of the myriad of issues that are raised from a person who's given birth. I think sometimes the community health worker captures some of the mental health issues that a primary care provider or an OB may not capture just due to the time of it and how short of the period their appointments are. Uh, women who've given birth only go to a doctor's appointment six weeks after. That's not enough by any stretch, especially to capture some of those mental health and other healthcare conditions and issues that may arise postpartum. So I would love to see a more interoperable system across the board. And Rachel, I imagine you agree with that. Uh, any other ideas on, on, on what the future might look like? 
Yeah, definitely. Karen took my words in regards to interoperability, so that's definitely a given in the health IT world. Um, but I also see that public health will be more integrated with healthcare and that public health will be able to get the data they need when they need it and, and when. Um, and this includes maternal and child health data. Um, I also think that, you know, I see in the future, hopefully, that providers will be able to report quickly, seamlessly, and easy to public health, you know, including such critical diseases such as hepatitis B, HIV, Zika, where early intervention is really key. Um, and then lastly, I just want to say that moms and babies will be happier and healthier, right? That's what we all want. Very good. Very good. All right. So um, before we leave, um, we've covered a lot of issues, but are there any places or resources, websites, maybe presentations or papers or or, or places where listeners can go to get more information uh, about these issues, about the policies you're developing, about the data, uh, any, any place you want to point uh, people to? And Rachel, maybe we start with you. Sure. Um, I would say definitely healthit.gov um, has uh, additional information, not just on um, maternal health issues that we've been working on, but also um, in regards to some of the pediatric health IT resources as well. Very good. Karen? Certainly. Uh, during the last administration, we released an HHS maternal health action plan, as well as a Surgeon General's call to action. I think those resources provide great information on the background and the challenges, as well as include a compendium of what HHS is, has been doing. Um, there, there's obviously more to be done, and this administration is putting forth more, but that provides a great background knowledge, and that's hosted on the ASPE website, aspe.hhs.gov. Very good. Well, thank you very much, both of you. Uh, certainly an important issue, uh, and I appreciate you uh, bringing this in front of all of our listeners. Uh, we've been talking with Karen Marks, uh, Office of the Intergovernmental and External Affairs at the Office of the HHS Secretary, and Rachel Abbey with ONC. Uh, Karen, Rachel, uh, so good to have you on our show. Great Thanks to be here. Thank you again. <laughs> yeah, thank, thank you. you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. Find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us and be safe. <laughs>